Brendan O'Connor on RTE Radio 1, sponsored by Timber Living Log Cabins. For your perfect workspace, living space or hideaway, timberliving.ie. Good morning, you're very welcome to the show. Uh, before we meet our panel, let's have a look at the front pages of the papers. Uh, the, the Irish Mail on Sunday, you could kind of run this headline any week, really. Coalition plans to buy elections, buy election with giveaways. That's the story of our lives for the last 50 years at this stage, isn't it? Um, Sunday Independent, they are saying there, by the way, that there will be an election in October, an autumn election. Uh, I don't mean to dismiss that story. Uh, the Sunday Independent has um, further coverage of Enoch Burke and also fair play to Mick O'Dwyer, 86, got married yesterday, uh, got married on Friday in, in Clarny and Mick o is declaring himself madly in love. Like I'm I'm 30 years or more younger than him and I don't barely have the energy to be madly in love anymore. So fair play to him. Uh, the business post commercial property market could lose 10 billion in value in 2023 and you you kind of might think I don't own any commercial property that's not going to bother me but you might find that uh, a lot of your pension if you have one is tied up in commercial property uh, they also have as their off lead Irish Google employees to hear of decision on job losses within weeks um the Sunday Times, colleges race to block threat of AI SHE, so education heads fear chat GBT risk to academic integrity is their lead. The Sunday World is leading with, um, this is Deirdre Brady, who is the wife of Declan, uh, so-called Mr. Nobody Brady, who is a laundered money for the Kinnahans and Deirdre Brady is that uh, presented herself to spend a year in prison for helping to launder money. And she arrived in a Jaguar and was handed over in a car park, they're saying. And the uh, Irish Sunday Mur, we're praying for a miracle. And that is the member of Aslan, the members of Aslan sending uh, their best wishes to uh, poor old Christy Dignam. And I'm sure we, we all send our best wishes wishes to Christy and his family this weekend. Now, our panel today, Norman Crowley is the chairman of Cool Planet Group. Siobhan O'Connell is commercial manager at Business Plus magazine. David W. Higgins is an economist at research firm Carrig Hill and, and a member of Fine Gael as well, David, uh, am I right? And Justine McCarthy is a columnist with the Irish Times. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Mm. Justine, um, I suppose we must start with um, Pascal Donoghue. Uh, Pat Rabbit, you picked out Pat Rabbit in the Business Post uh, saying that the undeclared donation is just a cat on the field of play. Uh, he's <laughs> saying, I, I think in common in fairness with a lot of the kind of what you might call the boomer columnists across the papers today, <laughs> that you think this is corruption. We know what corruption is. He's a, lost all sense of perspective. I actually had a conversation with a, a colleague yesterday Day, um, about whether did did our generation get terribly excited about things that really weren't of huge consequence, and we agreed that no, we didn't actually because there were there were serious scandals, you know. 20, yeah, 30 but are you ago. saying that this is of no consequence? I'm well. First of all, I don't think you can dismiss anything out of hand because there's always the possibility that something else will come out. But on the face of it, and from what we know. I think this is a puff of smoke. Yeah, I do. And Why? I, because I think it is a very small misdemeanor um, in the scale of things. And I detect from people I've been talking to, there is great impatience that the Dole has come back after five weeks Christmas holidays and spent the first week apoplectic about really what comes down to €140 Euro oversight. Now, that's not to say that there are problems with the system. I do think that the SIPO rules need to be changed. It needs reform. SIPO itself has been calling out for this. Pascal Donoghue is the person in position to make the, these changes. Well, recused at the moment, yeah. yeah. One, one issue that I do think should be addressed is the idea that a government minister would be selling raffle, raffle tickets mm. for fundraising for a political party, that should not be allowed. Government ministers yeah. should be above fundraising. And I'm talking about um, Pascal Donoghue having sold raffle tickets to Michael Stone. But really, you know, we have seen a near apoplectic... Um, ap uh, what is the word? 
Not a po- apoplexy apo- is, is, yes. the, is the abstract noun <laughs> like you're apocalypse. looking for. Yes. <laughs> apocalyptic. apocalyptic. I, I was getting mixed up between my apoplexy and my apocalypse. Well, yeah. Both probably yeah. apply. Scenes in our hospitals. We have protests going on around the country about housing of um, asylum seekers and refugees. Last week, the, the cabinet signed off on was it a 2.5 billion compensation plan for um, houses affected by um, defective concrete. And here we are talking okay. about it. So, so we take your point. Yeah. You're saying get, get on with it. Um, so, so Siobhan, then as a counterpoint to that, mm. you picked um, Jean Kerrigan on yeah. the back of the Sunday Independent, who has a kind of a different view on this. Well, first of all, I liked the headline, Be a Poster Boy for Truth, Pascal, which draws you in immediately when you're, when you're looking at it. And what Jean says is very, I agree with wholeheartedly, he says, for once I want an explanation that's simple and true and free of deceit. So far, Mr. Dunn, who's carefully chosen words are having the opposite effect. And by that, I suppose he's going through the carefully calibrated statements that have been given out so far. Yeah, I don't think that I, I, I think it might be unfair to say there is a question of deceit. No. There is maybe a question of not uh, giving oh, all God, the in, information. There's absolutely no question of deceit. That, it's that, just the clear present truth. What is it? This is what happened. That's it. Move on without having to come back in again to the doll on Tuesday and make a follow up statement to the statements he's already made. Yeah. And I think what we're told is that he was only going over stuff about 2020 on on Thursday. Uh, yeah. So, so, well, yeah. again, with that, you have to ask yourself, you know, this is not their first roundabout with, with scandals like this. And, you know, why was this, if at all possible, not shut down on Friday before you w- move into a weekend of commentary like this, radio analysis, interviews, etc., bringing it on? Francis Fitzgerald, Heather Humphreys coming out in the papers today saying, oh, this is not a resigning matter for Pascal. Now, the very fact that you're using the word resigning on Pascal in the same sentence doesn't help Pascal's situation, I think, in my own personal opinion. Now, interestingly, what Jean has in his article as well, which I liked, he said, Sippo might yet decide that Pascal's poster scandal occurred during an election campaign after the Dáil had been dissolved. And Mr Dunhu will technically not a TD. He was a candidate for election. Yeah, in, in the way that I think the, the parallel that Jean Kerrigan is making there in the way that Leo Varadkar, exactly. because he was the Taoiseach, technically could not, made, made the rules. Exactly, what, but as a counterpoint to, was. you know, just tell the truth, tell us what happened. It's a few posters, so what? Move on and just get get over with it. Yeah, he's saying own, own the mess is, own his, the mess. is his conclusion. Yeah. Um, so, David, they... What Siobhan points out there is is a thing I think a lot of people are saying is that the management of this, if nothing else, I heard somebody, uh, um, somebody used the word to me, a, a person very close to the situation used the word naive, that Pascal was seeming naive was what they said to me. And I thought, is that as damning as anything else like for his brand? Uh, yeah, look, it's unfortunate that this is going into a weekend into into next week. Um, but, you know, going back to the papers here, um, you mentioned about the boomer columnists. I'm a millennial, but I'm with the boomers here. Um, you know, people from an older generation would remember corruption scandals way worse than this in decades gone by. That's not to say that you brush issues like this under the, the carpet. But I think I expect Pascal to clear this up next week. Uh, and then hopefully the issues can, can, can be moved on. Yeah, but should he not have cleared it up? Oh, it, I, of course, but I mean, how how deep do you dig into uh, how deep how deep does any election candidate have all of their facts salient in, in any given week? This is something that is it's clear he's going back over, um, you know, past elections just to make sure that everything is is covered because it's clear in some of the press now they're starting to ask about the twenty twenty general election as opposed to the twenty sixteen one that this relates to. Um, and, but and so if we, is the case that there is something similar, we're told of a lesser magnitude, but possibly similar irregularity in twenty twenty. If you're going into the doll to talk about something that happened in one election and you think a similar thing might happen in another election, would you not be ready? Because he was, mm. it seems he's until he was asked about it in the doll, he only went looking then. Mm. Well, look, I mean, um, I the media are 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 asking for this. Like the, I've also seen reports looking back to his prior election in 2011 and the by-election in 2010 that he also ran for. Um, some of this is him having his facts uh, available, and some is extra questions that are getting getting added. So um, that that 
part, I think partly explains why we're into the next week on it. Um, but I expect this will be gone. And, and as Justine says, there's so many more important issues that we need to be talking about here. Um, accommodation issues, migration issues, um, cost of living issues as well. I mean, you know, the energy bills and gas bills are starting to fall into people's... But is this um, not important? Mm. Um, it, I think it, it is um, Ailish O'Hanlon um, kind of talks in her piece about... I, I suppose a perception of, right? We're not saying that this is the case here, but a perception maybe of this comfortable relationship between big business and politics. Is this not important? Well, the, the, the papers also report today that the person involved here uh, was previously a supporter of Bertie Hearn and Fianna Fáil in that constituency before being a supporter of, of, of Pascal. Yeah, no, uh, I don't know that for a fact, and, and it's, it, but it's not a lie. Well, well that is reported. That somebody in, was, yeah. But, but, but so, so, that, so that actually a comfortable relationship where they're all kind of agnostic about things but they are all well I think you got to remember part of that, the same that, tribe I think you got to remember that to be in business is to also be in politics because businesses are affected by taxes by regulations they they run staffs of people where there's internal politics uh, business people have to take an interest in, in, in politics and it doesn't surprise me that a businessman like this case was involved in Pascal's campaign Let's look and at there's the nobody suggesting there's anything wrong with that. Exactly, exactly. And it sounds like he it contributes exactly. to the community. But look, but, but, but look, look at a constituency be... like Dublin Central. If you go through the ballot paper in Dublin Central, it's left wing, left wing, left wing, Republican, left wing, Pascal. Okay, and that, and if you're a business person in that constituency and you decide in 2016, after we'd come out of an IMF programme to get involved in Pascal's campaign, that makes total sense to me. Surely the real scandal here that Fianna Gael should be addressing is that it has been in government for 12 consecutive years and yet the homelessness and the housing crisis are getting worse rather than better. The scenes in our hospitals are getting more distressing. We had protests yesterday, parents talking about their children being on hospital trolleys and in one or two cases yeah, dying. holding up photographs That's of what we should be concentrating yeah. on. Yeah. Yeah, and, and look, they would say they are. Um, just Norman. A, just a point that you got into there, you were saying like, well, why didn't, on 24 hours after, why didn't he get all this? Does does Pascal not have better things to be doing than this? Like like your example, like all these other crises, arguing, tying up a whole cabinet and everything for a whole week when we have all these other problems, it's ridiculous. Like, and I wouldn't, I'd forgive him completely if he turned around and said, I'm not answering any more questions about this. I have a job to do. Well, that could have been one angle he could have taken. And if Jesus, Mm. you could argue Jesus Christ himself had come down off the cross on Friday and said, I put up Pascal's posters and I didn't charge him anything. That wouldn't be enough for the Sinn Féin uh, argument, which is going after this because they see they see political capital in, it would in be dragging a hell of a this on. <laughs> well, it would be, but but you know, you're saying should Pascal not be doing other things? Yes, of course he. But by dragging, by not shutting it down, by dragging it into the weekend, dragging it into next Tuesday, mm. political capital is being wasted on this. When to go back to Justine's point and the other points there, there should be attention on other on other matters. And and do you, do you not think, Norman? Should we not know? Should it not be on the record what the uh, connections? and financial Mm. connections between business people and politicians are. However minor it might seem to some people the amounts involved in this situation. There's a question though. Yes, I do. There's a question of materiality in everything in life. And if you can tie up a whole bunch of people who have better things to be doing for 140 euros, is it not, does materiality not come into it at all? What happens next week when somebody has a 35 cents coffee that they didn't claim for somewhere. Are we going to tie up the whole place again over that? Or can we not move on? Like there's, we need leaders right now to lead very badly. Pascal, I'm not political, but Pascal is recognised globally. He's certainly recognised by the Europeans. They want him to run the group of finance ministers. He's recognised as a serious player. Can we not just let him get on with the job, you know? There's plenty to be done. Alan English's uh, letter from the editor in the Sunday Independent today makes really interesting reading. Um, As the editor of the paper that actually first reported on this story last weekend, he's saying that the decision to put the story on page six last week, some people might say that was underplaying it. Others would see it as an appropriate level of prominence. And he goes on to say, um, I have to admit, we didn't envisage the story taking off in the way it did. And 
he says, my view is the public is not particularly excited by this one. Now, okay. that's the editor that, of the that, paper that wrote the that's story. His view, right? Yeah, I don't think anyone um, thought uh, last weekend, Justine, that this was going to become the story it did. Did they? Did you? I certainly didn't. No. And I still don't think it should be the yeah. story. That well, we, I, OK, well, apart from what you sh- think should happen, uh, you did pick Michael Brennan in the Business Post, don't who to make further statement on postering expenses. Where do you think this goes from here now? Well, Pascal Donoghue is going to uh, give the further details on Tuesday in the Dole. Um, according to Michael Brennan and other uh, political reporters, it's not anything of major significance. Um, it's something to do with the 2020, his 2020 general election campaign expenses. Um Unless there's some sort of tripwire in what Mm. he's going to disclose, I see that as the end of it. Because when a scandal turns into a story about the mishandling of the scandal, I think, you know, the scandal is petering out. Before we leave this, David, Justine made an interesting point about a government minister around shilling raffle tickets to people like and then we have this other situation where here is a person who should be off doing important work for us nationally and internationally and he's caught up in this is it because of something a flaw in the way politics works in Ireland does it go way back to like our clientelism our PR system these enthusiastic amateurs who run constituency organisations and everything and obviously these these um, these expenses forms not being filled out properly and all that kind of thing. Is there something wrong in, in, in well, the way it all works? Well, part of the reason you'll have ministers uh, selling tickets uh, is because it's it's a it's a major earner for for a political party. It's it's you know it's a major source of funding. Um, but it's also down to the fact that we have relatively smaller numbers of people involved in political parties in Ireland vis-a-vis other countries. And that means that when you're with dealing with a smaller pool of people, you need to give bigger pushes when these comes these issues come around. If, if you're in the United States, you'd be doing fundraising uh, by by staffers mainly. Uh, but even major uh, political figures in the US would be ringing up the larger donors, focusing on that kind of thing. So yeah, we have a system whereby yeah. uh, even mm. government ministers see, do do uh, yeah, that. Siobhan, what? I I agree with you. Um, I, no, I no, I'm not. I, I, well, I'm, I'm only asking questions, you're asking here, questions. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Well, okay. Well, I agree with it. I do not think that government ministers should be out selling raffle tickets and greasing palms to raise money for the party. I just don't think. Yeah, I don't. Good. Let's not say they were no, greasing grease, palms, but selling, well, okay. if, if, selling if, raffle tickets. Is Norman, not a good if a idea. government minister rang you to sell you raffle tickets, would you feel there was some <laughs> element of a vague quid pro quo possibly like that you would then be known as a supporter of? I'd be saying, yeah, I was curious as to how much, does anyone know how much they were? 80 euros, roughly. 80 euro. Yeah, but he bought like, uh, the guts <laughs> of two grand's worth, yeah. I think. But if yeah. a government minister be, rings you up, would you say no? Um, I probably would and I'd be shocked that they had nothing better to do than that. It, 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 I'm with you. It makes me kind of sad to think that, especially the likes of Pascal, who's done a pretty good job and is well respected. And you're there going, Jesus, Pascal, is this all you have to be doing is selling 80 euro tickets? Yeah. You know? And look, there is no suggestion there's any quid pro quo for people who buy these tickets or whatever. OK, um, just on briefly, Justine, uh, on one related kind of political issue then, um, this uh, story on the front of the mail on Sunday, which when you read it, it kind of makes logical sense that they're saying like you wouldn't be having an election at this time of the year if you took pick this year for example that the the election will be in October of next year after there's been a big giveaway budget in September. Yeah, and that's what Leo Varadkar seemed to indicate during the week. But I don't think that will happen very easily because um I did an interview with Michael Martin in Christmas week. And he volunteered this himself. It wasn't in response to a question. He said that he believes that governments should go to their full term and he doesn't believe in sort of cuter politics of trying to gain advantage by calling a sudden or early election. So I don't see that there would be agreement by, you know, two of the three. Okay, so so there's another thing they can argue about for the next. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, and just give us briefly then, will you, Justine, apropos of that, the Sunday Times have a, an opinion poll today. And it's a kind of interesting. You would think this might even out in the, in the, in the next one, but there's an interesting uh, little 
change between Fine Fáil and Fine Gael? Yeah, it's a, a straight uh, swap, really, between the two parties. Fianna Fáil has gained four points to go up to 25% and Fine Gael has lost four percentage points to go down to 19 uh, Sinn Féin is still the biggest at 34%. Un- unchanged since the last uh, Unchanged, vote. yeah. Michal Martin is still the most popular leader at 51%, Mary Lou Macdonald at 47% and Leo Varadkar at 41%. But if you look back to the summer of 1920 when this history-making As government we do, was yeah. formed... <laughs> yeah, uh, 2020. Var- 2020. Yeah. Leo Varadkar came in um, to that government as the most, uh, far more popular than Micheál Martin. Micheál Martin's popularity was growing and growing towards the end of his time as Taoiseach. Uh, Leo Varadkar now will have the opportunity to build on that as yeah. he and his ministers will get more spot in of this public spotlight. Yeah, OK. And just to say, Labour up one to 4% in that poll. Uh, the Green Party uh, still on 5%, same as the last time they did uh, the behaviour and attitudes. And the uh, SOC Dems and so- Solidarity People Before Profit both increased by one percentage point to reach 2% support. Now, the the thing is as well, that was that poll was taken between January 5th and 17th, so it will have missed most of the the last week. And, yeah, and the, but the hospitals would have been very bad. Just yeah. one other finding in that poll, Brandon, 90% of voters agreed that politicians should have the pri- right to privacy in their home, which would suggest that 10% of people believe <laughs> that politicians should not be allowed to have privacy in their own homes. Yeah, OK. Um, texters on both sides of the Pascal Donoghue debate. Um, details are important, says one texter. We have to follow the details of all these stories. They may not seem big on their own, but standards need to be upheld. But then on the other hand, Angela, for God's sake, please stop discussing this insignificant <laughs> Pascal Donoghue event. It's only the opposition and the media who are interested in this. The public at large could care less and want the serious issues dealt with. OK, uh, moving on. Uh, Norman, you were looking at there. There's a lot of uh, health uh, stories floating around today, but you were looking in particular at the front of the the Business Post and Martin Curley, who I mean the HSC. Martin Curley, former head of transformation, digital transformation mm. at the HSE, mm. has walked from the job. Has mm. been very vocal about the problems he sees mm. there. The HSE denying uh, uh, de- denying. Um, I think they say that um, they reject the unsubstantiated claims made. I think the head of the HSE has said there's two sides to every story. He's a compelling figure nonetheless, whether we believe him or not. Yeah, I guess two, two, two stories joined together, right? Somebody in my family qualified as a doc uh, a couple of years ago and she ended up going to America because she couldn't operate here. And her first couple of years were walking around the hospital here, going from one computer to another just to collect emails because one computer couldn't have one thing and the other computer couldn't have the other thing. And then we talk about that people can't be seen and it's all a nightmare. And you join those dots together. Well, they can't be seen because you're walking around trying to get an x-ray from one machine and you can't from another. And then Martin Curley comes in from the private sector, takes a pay cut to take the job, right? I don't know Martin, but he's got a very successful background. And then he walks out and his quote in the currency is quite shocking. He he said um, that um, the barriers to change in health service are so insurmountable that he no longer believes it possible for anyone to do it. Like and this, you know, by any I don't know him, but he would seem like a very serious operator that would be put into a serious job to to do this and it it would sort so many things, you know, and then because yeah. digital transformation is something that you would think occurred in most organizations mm. about t- 20 years ago, 10 years mm. ago, like that, that yeah. we've we've done that. Yeah. There's been an industrial revolution, no less <laughs> around computers. Yeah. It's yeah. changed the way the whole world yeah. operates like. Yeah. Yeah. And but anyway, it doesn't it has not happened to, from no. what we hear. And what he HSC. says is that so many vested interests blocking it from happening. Mm. And then what does he do in the announcement? He says, I'm going away to do a tech startup in healthcare. So I'm actually going to go out and do it somewhere else. And we're losing these people. And it did take ages for the HSE to even comment on it, you know. And it did that and linking it back to Pascal, 
make me think, how do we treat our leaders, the people who are trying to do this thing, um, these solve these complicated problems? And we we let them go, we dump them out and just um, don't talk about it anymore. Like if you look at all the problems in the papers this week, Ukrainians, housing crisis, health crisis, what they all need is leadership, right? And then you look at how we're treating the people that we want to lead and they're all walking away. You know, it's a serious thing. And we vilify So you think them. the public sector is becoming less and less attractive to... Um, Hugely so. And then what I'm noticing in our business, we're in the green business, right? And what I notice shockingly, actually, is in the last year, is this heavy hitters leaving the tech companies coming to us and taking pay cuts to come to us because they're so well paid in the tech, in the, in the Facebooks and that. And they want, they're coming to us to solve the problem. And, and it's very, we take it really to heart when they do that. It's amazing. And I know a lot of entrepreneurs and the likes of Martin who would take a pay cut. They've made their money. They take a pay cut to come and solve this problem. But if they're prepared to take a pay cut to solve problems like this, how do we treat them then when they do? OK. On the other hand, mm. we have some very handsomely enumerated people running the health service. Can I, Justine, can I challenge you on that? If you... If you have a, the budget for the health service, I think is 24 billion. I think it went up by one and a half billion this last budget. If you this is just a reality check. If I'm in business, right, if I'm hiring somebody to run a 24 billion business, right, do you know how much I'd pay them? Minimum seven or eight million quid a year. And if somebody said to me, Can I come and work no, no, yeah, no, 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 let me <laughs> Sorry, just finish it. No, let me just <laughs> yeah. finish it though, right? Yeah. If somebody said, our business doesn't have that revenue, but it, it has, you know, hundreds of revenue, hundreds of millions of revenue. We, when we bring in an executive, we, if somebody said to me, they're willing to come in for a quarter of a million a year and run this huge, important thing, I'd be saying, like, there's a catch here, lads. Like, this person isn't going to work for this. And so why do we expect in the health service that we can pay somebody that? Not just the leader of Which the health service. Which is no suggestion that we don't get, get good leaders in, in the health service um, and that the leadership... Oh, well, I'm saying the results aren't great, to be honest, right? And, and yeah. then when the results okay. of something aren't great, I question who's in charge. Justine, what do you think? Just the point I was going to make was you know, we have a Secretary General of the Department of Health who got a very large uh, salary increase when he moved over to that department. And there's a head, the head of the HSE, I think, is the highest paid uh, mm. public servant in the country. Um, it is their job to ensure that the the tech facilities uh, underlying the health service are up to date and modern. Yeah. And, and those arguments were made when there was controversy about the pay, for instance, that was going to be given to the Secretary General, you know, the one area, that you needed course, to pay somebody yeah. a lot of David, money to the, do that job. The one area of tech and health that we did well was during the pandemic. Because we set up systems overnight, which were able to mm. deal it's with extraordinary. Yes, yeah. Yeah. yeah, and I don't. I think mean, remember when you got your um, when you you would get a, a job, mm. and like a day later, yeah. magically an app would Apps update on your phone. Meanwhile, yeah. a chemist is telling me the other day that he keeps on. He has to keep on a computer. I think all the uh, prescriptions that everybody gets from him, right? So he can go back, search it, check what medications people are on. Hospitals ring him. To say, do you have this patient XYZ? What medications are they on? And he said he's telling them this verbally over the phone. They're writing it down. He's There's a concern among chemists now that something will go wrong in the communication of it. But that they seem to have a better system than the actual HSE from, from what yeah. he And the broader question is, it could be done during COVID. They've proved it can be done. They've proved they can act really fast, modernise things very Digital quickly. transformation, Digital you'd almost call it. <laughs> whatever you want to call it, can happen literally overnight. So it's not like they're saying this can never be done. They've proved it can be done. So why can't they do it now? Interesting. And, and why? Is, it, is, there an, is there no will there? Well, you'd have to ask the question. The will was certainly there during COVID when it was like a pandemic and there was a sense of urgency and all of that. But the will should always be there. And to go back to Justine's point, if they're earning the, what they're earning and they're earning big packages, never mind the pension benefits that go with the basic remuneration packages, well, the will should be there as a matter of course, because that's their job. Just to go back to it, they're paid a lot of money, but you have to relate everything to the scale of what they're operating. It's You can't look at it and say that's more than the other guy. Or 
like you have to look at it and say, this is a 24 billion operation. What do people who operate successfully, 24 billion operations get paid, right? And then if you're not paying market rate on that, what are you getting? And what we're getting, we're experiencing every day of the week in the health service. We're getting substandard result. You know? you know, the people who would have made the, it was external consultants who made the systems that we used during COVID that I mentioned. And I would bet they don't disclose their pay, but I say the partners in those firms are paid a lot more than the people in the HSE, but we are funding them by paying for those systems. Yeah. So there's an yeah. indirect of course, way. Yeah, of, yeah, we forget that that we're here arguing about consultant doctors. It's actually the real uh, vampire squeeze who runs the world is the big consultancy yep, yep, companies. Big yeah, 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 yeah. Now, um, Related to, to that then, David, you uh, there's there's a number of stories about this whole issue that's going on around uh, tech jobs being lost. You picked that story on the front of the business post, uh, Google, Irish Google employees to hear of their job outcomes within weeks. Yeah. So, um, you know, in the early stage of this, uh, what we're seeing is job losses in, in tech. And tech is a sector which had grown a lot during the pandemic, in fact, added lots of tens of thousand jobs in the major firms. And they're now beginning to reverse because they realise they hired too, too, too many people. And at the outset, these are job losses that can be filled elsewhere. There are other jobs in the economy right now. Um, but I am worried that the, the, the phase of the, of the global economy we're going through now is going to end up in one where we lose the status of full employment by the end of this year. So full employment is something we've enjoyed um, in Ireland, the UK, the US and other major countries for most of the past decade. Um, but, you know, central banks have, have taken on a, a very particular task here to try and get inflation down. And in doing so, they're trying to slow the economy. And the IMF predicts this year that about one third of uh, global countries will go into recession. Um, Ireland may not end up doing so. We, we're pretty robust. But um, I think that status of full employment is is at risk. Yeah. OK. It's it's an interesting point you make. So just with your economist hat on for a minute, there's a weird thing going on here where good news seems to be bad news at the moment, whereby <laughs> if the economy gets, a, if there's any good news in the economy, like China's opening up, great, it's going to be good for the economy. Yeah. Oh no, Price, it could yeah. push inflation. So <laughs> what What do we want? Do we want a, a recession now or not? Or not? Or do we, uh, it's, yeah, yeah the, the phrase that we use in finance is is Goldilocks, right? You know, not, okay. not too hot, not too cold. And we'd love for, for the labour market, for the jobs market. Jobs market was too hot last year. There were people who were um, leaving jobs, jumping between jobs, great resignation because they had the power to do so. Yeah, um, You need to have a Goldilocks scenario whereby people think a bit more maturely about changing jobs where um, there might be just a little bit of unemployment out there. Not Nothing nothing too strong. Nothing that would send us back to the days of people queuing up and everything after the, the last financial crash. That's what central banks are trying to steer. But what I think is going to happen so is... So they want a little bit of a recession. They, they, like. do, they do, yeah, they do, right? So this is, this is the thing about yeah, central banks. Which is grand for macro people. I know, like, I know. But the yeah. micro guy, like, it's like back to, it's a recession when your neighbour loses his job and yeah, a exactly. depression when you do. Mm -hmm. yeah. Exactly. So what I think will happen is, I think we'll realise that we're into a bit of a recession by the end of the year. But then central banks, they're not going to pick the economy. What normally happens is the central banks come and they kind of lift the economy up. They lower interest rates. They pump a bit of money in QE. They can't do that this time. But what's going to happen is actually governments are probably going to step in. We're going to see a bit more uh, fiscal spending uh, to actually prop Which up the Which the jobs. central banks have specifically told them again this week. Uh, Philip Lane has been saying mm. it. Christine Lagarde has been saying it. Stop pumping out money to people because you're feeding inflation. Yes, so and, that's, and that's where we're going It sounds like it's a wicked circle, isn't yes, it? Yes, like, but what you raise there is where we're going to have conflict over this. So, so central banks are kind of They've had a free run now since the 08 crisis. They've been able to set policy and it hasn't really conflicted with what governments are, are trying to do or what they want. We're going to get into conflict by the end of the year, whereby we're going to be saying to central banks, hang on a minute, you have caused a recession here and we need to get jobs going again. And governments are going to try and do a spend a bit more. But what I think we're also going to see is this is a, a tool we haven't used since the 1950s, using credit, using loans, actually increasing the amount of lending into the economy to pump it back up again. That's something that we haven't done. And we've been afraid to do it because we've said that's... Well, we've been burned by a credit mm. bubble. Exactly, yeah. exactly. And when I say we, I mean Europe, I mean the US, the UK. I mean, globally, we're, we're going to start doing that. And and there's big, and there's precedence from this in decades gone by. And it's going to be, I think, a brand new world of the economy where we use these new different tools to try and get the economy going again. So I think it's going to be, there will be some, but we lose that size of full employment, but then we probably get it back again by next year. Okay, so you're talking about a wobble here, but, yeah. that, but a wobble that might settle things a bit. Yeah. Norman, going back to the tech jobs thing, would you worry that we're going to lose our full employment, that these uh, the, the tech jobs is going to become a significant, the loss of tech jobs is going to become a significant force in the economy? Not in not in tech. The, if you look at the numbers up till October, 
um, that the IDA released with all the announcements that came up till October, there was still a net increase in um, in tech jobs. And there was a lot of hysteria before that. Now, we don't have the data yet from October until now. It would seem there was more of a turn after October. Yeah, though, wasn't and there it might period. be a, a drop now. As somebody who's hiring tech people, I'm absolutely flipping delighted <laughs> over it. Um, and long may it continue. <laughs> so we so are outgunned. we hear that this is good for indigenous oh, Irish fantastic. tech companies, yeah. so that the, the people yeah. who are building the next multinationals here. Yeah, because actually, yeah. and this is known internationally, um, the tech guys were stockpiling people that they didn't need. They mm. were just soaking them in in case they needed them. Really? Yeah, seriously. And they've admitted that, right? And so... Just hire hire somebody and think of a title for them and... (laughs) And keep them in, right? And I know people in Dublin who worked for some of the big tech companies who had no idea what they did for a living, right? Yeah, so the phrase phrase that was used was that tech firms became adult daycare, that they were just taking in... (laughs) No, I'm I'm serious. You can look this up on TikToks and Instagram reels. Like, this was a real thing where there were people coming in and getting a coffee and sitting in the nice fancy chairs and no one knew what they did. And that's coming to an end and that is for the best. That's brilliant. Siobhan, from your end Mm. uh, in Business Plus, what's your sense of things or what are you hearing from people in business? First of all, I think if you look at the headlines, you go, Amazon cuts 18,000 jobs. Everyone goes, oh my God, that's hard, that's dreadful. And then you actually look behind the headline, you go, that, that's actually 1% of its global workforce. So a little bit of context into what we're seeing. That's the first thing. Um, if you look at Microsoft, for example, and its job la- la- announce, uh, losses announced this week, they will still have 57 more, 57,000 more employees even despite cutting 10,000 yeah. because of what they hired in the I last two years. I was quoting Amazon yesterday. Yeah. Amazon have twice as many employees as they had at the end of 2019. Exactly, exactly. Mm. Now, to go back to Norman's point there, it is actually good news for SMEs because it gives them a fighting chance now back in the jobs market to recruit people that they had no opportunity to recruit before because of the ginormous salaries and perks and okay. conditions that these tech companies were offering. So, And secondly, you've got to look at the, the Irish economy had been overheating. It, you know, that's that's a reality. You look at housing, you look at stretched public services, all of those things. Why, you have to ask, why was that all overheating? Because of this gi- enormous momentum in the tech jobs and what that was bringing in terms of competition for housing and rents and everything like that and stretched public services. So maybe it's a correction that had to happen. Yeah, and again... That's fine on a macro level. But for the individual this tonight, for the individual today in Google Mm. who doesn't know whether they're going to have a job next week or Amazon or whoever, you can't take away the fact how catastrophic it is for them on a personal basis. It's all well and good to talk about the macro stuff and say, oh, this is all fine. But there's an individual in their house tonight going, oh, what about my mortgage and my bills and all of that? Norman's hiring. Yeah, Norman's hiring. (laughs) So listen, I I mean, it feels ironic that we're discussing this as Ireland as this tech superpower in the world. And the techs coming in here, uh, people brought my elderly father to a hospital appointment last week. No computers used by doctors, all paper files. The doctor prescribed two medications that the pharmacist informed me he was already on. And like we've all had the experience, you go in. How many times have we all given our... our, um, medical history to be written down on a piece of paper uh, <laughs> at this stage um, and there's uh, my son is a pharmacist in a well-known hospital spends most of his time rooting and filing cabinets for patient files what are hospital management at? listen uh, Siobhan mm. um, the Sunday Times Ryan's electric dream label pie in the sky amid dearth <laughs> of charge stations now we were told this week there's go- that, that the new focus is charging stations lots everywhere, of money every, yeah. 100 million euro investment in all of this, a big report with lots of lovely shiny pictures and personas and all these different people who are going to use all these different charging points and how it's all going Every to happen. Every 60 kilometres on the motorway you'd be able to charge your EV. Having driven from Dublin to Kilshima last Sunday for a funeral and on the motorway I actually only saw one service station. I mean there's a lot of work to be done to get all these charging points at every 60 kilometres. However, despite all that... And, and maybe they might put a toilet with them as they, well. You know, yeah, wouldn't that be stop lovely? Stop all those people at the parking <laughs> spots along the motorway. So look, it's very ambitious uh, but it's got um, a piece of analysis by Patrick O'Donoghue uh, in the Sunday Times today and he's gone and he's talked to different individuals who have a lot of knowledge about the sustainability sector and they are basically saying it's pie in the sky um, the plan is to make as you say fast chargers available every 60 kilometres now he talks to a gentleman called Brian Caulfield Trinity College Dublin professor whose research focuses on transport emissions and climate change. And he says uh, one of the big issues with electric vehicles is that in order for them to be really viable, you need to have a driveway in Dublin. 
and more than half of the population in Dublin don't have a driveway. Uh, in order for electric cars to be efficient, they need to be charged overnight when the wind is blowing. Mm. Problem number one. So if, yeah, if you well, if you can plug in your car at home, yeah, yeah you exactly. Can so a- if you don't own a driveway, you can't park in your car for the wind to be blowing for it to be recharged overnight. Uh, now, Ireland is legally obliged under the climate plan to ensure that all new car registrations are electric vehicles by 2030. It's a hugely ambitious project. Reading the report um, this week, uh, as I said, there's lots of very lofty aims. There's lots of great examples about what they do in other in other countries. In London, they've got charging stations that are part of lampposts. In Rotterdam, they've got charging points that are in the ground and it's a piece under your car and your car sits on it and it's wirelessly recharged. And that's the wow. as- okay. yeah, that's mag, the, mag safe. Yeah, yeah, that's the aspiration. Uh, they're looking at putting them into apartments. I live in an apartment block. I mean, the idea of putting them into apartments when apartment owners now at the moment are more concerned with the apartment not falling down around their ears because of all the things that have gone wrong with them. Electric charging vehicles is not a top priority, and even so, there's the administration and all that. How that all that is going to happen? Okay. This is sustain- right. finally the yeah. Sustainability Energy Authority of Ireland, and they know all of that. And they said uh, the authorities have applied for 38 on-street public electric charging points. Um, not uh, so far. Richard Bruton, Finnegale TD, he's come out in uh, quite stridently, and he says the scheme's target of 1,000 on-street public charging points would not be achieved in the five years. He said. The councils had, quote, not bothered to install the infrastructure because they viewed the grants worth of the €5,000 as insufficient. OK. So, Norman, is this all pie in the sky? Just explain to people, this is your one of your areas. Well, we don't we don't have a dog in Ireland in the fight in terms of charging. So, But we are one of the three divisions we have is electric transport. So and I'm, you know, I wouldn't say I'm an expert in doing anything, but I'm an expert in in this, right? And I'd love to meet this Trinity College. No, 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 no. <laughs> yeah, no. Like, what a load. Like, okay, if you're you listening disagree, to this you radio. Disagree, you disagree I with disagree. Okay. If you're listening to this radio and you are that person, bang me an email after. We need to talk. Right? OK, well, maybe you have a chat with that person. Yeah, yeah. but I mean, nobody's questioning his credentials or anything. No, because you know, look, no. we already have uh, David Higgins and Nile <laughs> Conn. Did you call him yeah. David Higgins yeah. without yeah. W? <laughs> so, no, seriously. Yeah. Well, yeah. first thing to say, climate change is a very, very serious issue. Right. And. The government are doing their best. We've been screaming at them for years to put in charging stations because you see people queuing up for charging stations and the sales of electric cars in Ireland have gone through the roof. So consumers don't need any more encouragement. They're voting now with their wallets and they're buying these vehicles. So government does have to do this. And... It will do it'll it. It'll stop people from it'll stop more people from buying them though, won't it? If, like if that mm. insecurity is there, that geez, I, I might have to queue up at a charger or something. What or people are doing at the moment to the point about people with houses doing it and people with apartments aren't is people who are lucky enough to have two cars are buying one electric and they're keeping the other one for when they need to go to Kilchamock. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah, yeah. And by the way, that's a lot of electric cars. If the second car is electric, that's gonna that's going to solve a lot of problems because people will just buy them anyway for that. But so, then, like, the, should mm. the focus be small city cars? I often think, yes. like, is that should that be one of the ideas? Like, and rather it is, than it is too, because like you see some of these electric cars are well known. People are buying high range tanks, beamers, and all mm. that kind of thing. In it the should, very it, beginning, be it was all up. fancy cars. Now, a huge amount of them are smaller cars. The other thing, to your point about charging and not buying them because. They can't charge them. The range of these things is going through the roof, right? And the the bigger ones now are up at 800 kilometres. So what you're going to see as well is charging is less of a factor. So range anxiety is yeah. not going to be the People the just thing. go, they know they can get from A to B without, and then they'll just charge when they come home in but the evening. But that doesn't yeah. help people who can't afford to buy new cars. Yeah. So if you're mm. stuck with buying a second-hand car, you're not going to get one of the, the new um, no. generation e. But you, and then apparently, Justine, there's another issue, which is that the batteries only last 10 years. So if you're buying a second hand one, it's mm. already kind of worn down. Exactly. And, and Norman, can I ask another question? <laughs> oh. If my electric car breaks down, right? <laughs> I can't get the local mechanic in Kilchimar or whatever, if that's where I am. <laughs> yeah. he, I can't get him out. Like Just a couple of things. <laughs> the electric, The battery in your electric car 
Well, there are taxis in Hull, in Schiphol Airport in Amsterdam. They're the longest electric cars in in history operating, right? They've done over a million kilometers, right? It's 10 years. The battery lasts 10 years if you're doing massive mileage on these things. I thought 10 years or 100,000. No, 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 absolutely okay. not the case. There's so much misunderstanding of this whole thing. And consumers are understanding it more because they're buying them more, because they're trusting them more. The other thing, an electric vehicle has 98% less moving parts, right? So you might struggle to get a mechanic to, to do something or not. I don't know. But you're I can tell you, you're going to be talking to mechanics an awful lot less because these things just don't break anything near as much. OK. And people are on people are understanding that more. And to Justine's point about second hand, now that electrics are washing through the market, there are second hand electrics coming on the market more and more. Yeah. And that will that will presumably increase over the next few years. Just to be clear on your dog in this race, you don't sell electric cars. What you do is you it's kind of like almost a passion thing, is it? You take people's yeah, high end cars. What we do in volume, but not in Ireland, is we do mining vehicles for the mining industry. We make small mining vehicles, electric for the mines, because they need them really, really badly. Because if you go underground in a diesel vehicle, you're poisoning the poor miners. So we make electric versions of that. That's the only thing. But we are passionate about it in Ireland because climate is so serious as a problem. And I find it fascinating. We would be labelled as crazy, and there's so much crazy talk about electrics, apart from consumers are buying these things now. Yeah. So okay. they can see they're better. But then also, know? just a final point, this weekend also Minister Ryan, as he was uh, publishing this report, also announced they're cutting back on the grants that are going to be available to buy these new electric cars in the first place. And that talks to Justine's point. People who might be in the market for electric car, it's a big purchase. It's a lot of money. And these yeah. grants you know, might be the yes or no as to whether they're going yeah. to go and do it. And, and now the and, grants and, are being cut back. And they're going to, the benefit in kind is being cut back. Yeah. They're going to start, have to start taxing them at some point exactly. as well, more than they are at the moment. Uh, DW, any views on this? <laughs> um, I sold my car two years ago, so I'm actually not good. Have you gone car cars. free yet? I have. Now I'm actually just, I'm on, uh, I'm on uh, registry with other cars, so I borrow a car, like that kind of thing. But um, I mean, and is this a go car kind of situation? No, family. So, I mean, thing okay. for, the thing for me is, um, the one thing, this is a bit of an related issue um, but insurance so um, I'm looking potentially to get a car this year and I'm two years gone from the old car and because you're two years gone you're no claims bonus doesn't transfer over and I think that's a massive disincentive for people to actually get rid of cars and go car free and um, to go in and out yeah you should be able yeah. to go in and out more easily without feeling the pressure that, you know we talk about range anxiety there's an anxiety here to actually keep a car on the road Maria Hannigan emails to say culture changes need in Ireland we don't all need to own a car People who live in cities can use public transport. In European cities, urban dwellers don't own cars. In rural areas, electric cars are ideal. I own and drive a small electric car for the last four years. Uh, on the health service, just two on to read out. Uh, somebody says that the sad truth is that there are many highly skilled, innovative and creative employees at all levels with solutions leaving our health services because of the lack of systems to do the job. And somebody else says, surely it's as simple as buying a load of iPads, create a database, hire a crew of people to input data of all patients. And hey, presto, you you might think that, wouldn't you? <laughs> um, now, uh, David, you picked out this story on the front page of the Sunday Times, uh, which seemed to be very future focused today, which is a good thing. Uh, this this is the colleges racing to block the threat of AI writing people's essays and doing exams for them. Yeah, so it's the new tool, ChatGPT, and it's a system whereby you write in a piece of text and it'll give you a response. And it could be, write me an, a news article about um, s some latest um, scandal and it'll give you a, a read back of it. And what's remarkable is that college students can effectively put in their essay questions and get pre-written um, questions back, responses back. Um, a colleague of mine in work um, did this to me almost as, as a prank put in I'd asked him to go off and research let's say it was the Brazilian economy or something like that and he came back to me with three or four paragraphs of it but it was all true chat GPT he did the same with my boss to, to test him and both of us reviewed it thinking it was, it was his work and it was only when we went back to him we, he told us that it was AI generated not did from you think it was okay? It was Before poor. It was poor. I was ready to give out to him. For, for, uh, it's somewhere between poor and adequate, you know, like it, these things are in their infancy, right? But the, the risk of actually fooling people or even doing a few paragraphs out of a larger essay through these tools is, is something that the colleges now are looking to actually have a, have a policy on. But the other thing is that 
lecturers could use this to correct the exams. You know, you could put it in to say, look, here's the piece, give us critical feedback, and AI would give you a response to that. So who, okay, so who lands me this? Why do we then have an education system that's obsessed with teaching people skills that computers can do already? Well, Why well, aren't we teaching people the next level of skills? Well, Am I wrong? Well, as I, well, I think as, as part of what I said there, you know, uh, quick, quite quickly, we were able to realize that this was a prank. You know, so you know, you can only fool humans for a short period of time with these tools. Yeah. Ultimately, you know, you know, you're talking to a human by very intricate things about how we use language, and that's very difficult yeah. to put into a computer. And we should say that, mm. and I think people forget this, and it's an interesting thing. From ChatGPT does not know what it's saying. Oh, exactly, mm. exactly. It's only, it's, and, it's and, out words. and it, it only, it only, it only, it. it only goes back to I think 2019 or 2020. So it's it's missing recent news events so you actually couldn't do a, t- do a show like what, this it's not connected to the internet it is but it's, yeah it, it is but I, I think they, they, they need, they've cut it off they've cut it off they need to get Martin Curley there into chat TV <laughs> and get them worked up pay well for it yeah. Siobhan you wanted to I come in there I was just going to say there we, uh, what we were talking earlier about the tech jobs when Sajan Nutella the Microsoft CEO was t- talking at Davos earlier this week and he was giving some interviews and you know Microsoft is betting big betting the house on all mm. this artificial AI intelligence mm. artificial artificial intelligence which they see as the huge future apparently I, am I right Norman you can't get uh, venture capital money this year unless you have AI tagged <laughs> onto your business yeah. name somewhere connected to the internet I just wanted to say if you haven't if you're listening and you haven't played there's two things to play with one is chat GPT which you can play with on the internet and the other one is called DALL-E it's D-A-L-L and an E at the end and what DALL-E does is it'll paint a painting for you so if you describe a painting in a style of a particular artist it will do that painting for you both ChatGPT and Dali are, you've never seen anything like these things. Don't underestimate it. Go on the internet and give it a go. One thing, Siobhan, that oh, yeah. ChatGPT cannot do <laughs> is fall madly in love Isn't at the, this just at the age of 86. Fair play, Mikko. Fair play, Mikko. There he is on the front of the Sunday Independent. With, with his her, beautiful bride, Geraldine McGurr. Geraldine McGurr. And they look as happy as you could be and they're madly well, in love. Well, I would say Mikko is more like... Do you think? Yeah, is it, well, maybe that is his happy, maybe that's his happy <laughs> face. I think he's playing poker face but on he's it. He's not yeah. alone. Um, Mick, I think he's 86. He didn't mind telling uh, readers of the Sunday Independent. And then yeah. you've got Buzz Aldrin this week. He's yeah. 93. He's also an eternal optimist. He got married to uh, a lady. Uh, I can't remember her name now. I think she's about 62. And then as Le- uh, Neve Waters <laughs> bringing it all together in the mail on Sunday in her column. And then she references as well uh, Game of Thrones star Charles Dance. He's revealed how very, very lucky he is to be with his new girlfriend who's 22 years his junior. So I just think it's fantastic. It's the definition of optimism. Is, when is everyone else abs- around, grey and dark, love conquers all. But listen, what is life but a series of moments and whether you're close to the beginning or close to the end, exactly. just live it for now. And age fantastic. is just a number. Fantastic. And yeah. we, I'm sure we all send our congratulations and our best wishes to Mick O'Dwyer and Geraldine McGurr today. And on that... Happy note, we will end. Norman Crowley, Siobhan O'Connell, David Higgins and Justine McCarthy. Thank you all very much.